Can't Say That is a sociology podcast that poses more questions than answers. Join your hosts, doctors, Nama Carlin and Melanie White in a journey to make the familiar unfamiliar. Hello, everyone, and welcome to You Can't Say That, a podcast. Oh, I'm my turn? <laughs> it, it is a podcast, a sociological podcast that asks more questions than answers. We really should have coordinated that in advance. <laughs> I'm Nama Carlin, and with me is Melanie White. Who are we talking about today, Melanie? We are talking about the uh, foremost critic of our contemporary mode of production, capitalism. I refer to Karl Marx. I've heard of him. Who hasn't heard of Karl Marx? Yeah, his reputation precedes him. It's interesting. He's considered to be one of the capital F founders of the discipline of sociology. I was going to thought you were going to say something else there, but... Yes, he's, he's considered to be a capital F founder, but this was even before the discipline of sociology was constituted as a formal discipline. So He was a journalist, historian, um, sociologist. He, more importantly, founded the political theory of Marxism. Marx's ideas were significant in the development of the modern social sciences as we know them today, especially sociology, and in developing a socialist political movement. We talked about his reputation and one of the challenges about talking about Marx today is really his reputation precedes him. People know a lot about Marxism and less about Marx. So what we're trying to do today is pair back a bit and have a close look at one of his earlier texts where he has some really interesting ideas about selfhood. So one of the things about Marx is in a letter that he wrote to to a comrade, he observed that there was a problem between his name and the name that had been given to this movement, Marxism. And given the conservatism of the movement, given also the spirit in which the movement had progressed beyond what he had envisaged for his social and political theory. He said something to the effect of, I may be Marx, but I'm not a Marxist. And I always like that kind of formulation because it separates out the man from this system of ideas. And I think the system of ideas, especially as it's been known to legitimate a whole series of tremendous oppressive uh, social and political regimes. So I'm referring to the Soviet Union and other regimes like China, etc. The quote is, now what is known as Marxism in France is an altogether peculiar product. All I know is I'm not a Marxist. Mm. And that's exactly how uh, I think when we're thinking of these theorists as products of their time, when was Marx writing? What were the what period was he writing in? Um, uh, Mid-19th uh, century. So I think one of the things, uh, one of the difficulties with Marx is that uh, his work went through a series of evolutions. So there is the period where he wrote the Communist Manifesto, say, for instance, with Friedrich Engels. He wrote that in 1844. So this sort of is a period kind of constituting his early phase, the early Marx. And uh, as in contrast to his later work, work associated with Capital. And Capital, the first volume was published in 1867. 
So I think uh, it's important to recognize that for people who are interested in that, is it early marks we're talking about today or is it possibly late marks? It is early marks. And let me compliment you, Nama, on pulling out the evidence. Melanie, let me tell you, (laughs) says Nama, if you really want to have the textual evidence for that quotation, (laughs) dun dun dun, I have it right here and this is what it was in the letter. We love to do a bit of theorist gossip here. Do you have the goss on the uh, foremost founder of social and political theory in the West? I do. It's not as juicy as I would have liked, but it is pretty good. Goss is goss Goss as far as I'm concerned. Marx, people might not know this, but he was Jewish. He was born into a Jewish household. Not only was he Jewish, he came from a long line of rabbis. But this was at a time where there were laws against Jews practicing professions in Prussia, where Marx was born, where his family lived. So Marx's father, in order to practice, he was a lawyer, to practice law, had to convert from Judaism to Christianity. Unfortunately, he converted to the wrong type of Christianity. He converted to Lutheranism, and they were living in a Catholic, probably Catholic town. So Marx was a Jew, but he actually really wasn't a Jew because he was a Christian. But then he really wasn't the right kind of Christian, right? He was always in a minority and always already alienated in a certain sense. So Marx's life was defined by these contradictions. And I think this is important because it feeds in, I believe, gives us greater insight into his later work. This idea of alienation, you know, how one experiences our biography can influence how we think. So alienation does become a big theme in Marx's Mm. work, this belonging and not belonging sense of a a dualism. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that biographical um, line, because certainly, too, thinking about Marx's early scholarly studies, he was quite enamored with Hegel, for whom alienation is a foundational concept. So I quite like your observation that there's a uh, a personal element that could account for the theoretical interest in this concept that then becomes incorporated into his early theorizations about the conditions and limits of capitalism as a mode of production. Can I tell you my favorite Hegel goss? Yeah. <laughs> goss is goss. Bring it. <laughs> Well, I I just think it matches Marx's so nicely. So there is a, I cannot cite this. Hegel uh, on his deathbed has told one of his closest disciples, his closest students, um, no one has ever understood me and and even you have not ever understood what I I was trying to say. So he's becoming, you know, he's like, oh, all all my life's work and I've still not understood. And I just love that correlation with Marx who's saying, if this is Marxism, I'm not a Marxist. It's uh, that sense of refutation or kind of sticking your heels in the ground that I think both theorists have Mm. and share. And it's interesting because Marx was such an avid reader uh, of Hegel and had done really interesting stuff with Hegel's dialectic that Mm. I like to bring that up every time I talk about Marx and Hegel. Anyway, just a bit of trivia. So how are we going to tackle Marx's starting point? Where are we going to start from? I've got an idea. Okay. Let's start from his conception of self. Great. So I think it might be helpful to start with a sort of a distinction. And the distinction is, on the one hand, Marx is known for his critique of capitalism. And that critique of capitalism 
tends sometimes to be severed from his broad social theory, which is the way in which he conceptualizes the evolution of different societies and the evolution of the nature of production of each of these societies. And so when we're thinking about, okay, well, what kind of conception of self does Marx have? It's always important to note that that conception of selfhood is historically and structurally organized. So it's historical in principle in the sense that it evolves and changes over time. But it's structured according to the... uh, conditions of labor and productive activity in a given society. So with that in mind, I think when we are talking about Marx's conception of self, we need to think about his conception of productive labor, which is defined by him as the exercise of productive powers to transform, manipulate, or alter the material environment in a free and conscious manner. So for him, laboring is fundamentally human, and it's the capacity to transform some raw material into something altogether, not altogether different, but to exhibit a fundamental transformation in the nature of that material that reflects human effort. Nama has asked me to provide a definition of capitalism, and here goes. So for Marx, capitalism is defined as a mode of production that relies on the production and sale of commodities. One of the important things to think about is because certainly all societies, all modes of production exhibit the purchase and sale of commodities to greater or lesser extent. One of the things that distinguishes capitalism as a mode of production is that the human capacity for labor is bought and sold as a commodity. So the idea that we might say my, uh, my laboring time is worth an hour, say, is a function of a certain kind of calculation of the commodification of human labor for purchase and sale. And so this makes uh, distinctive the ground of Marx's social theory. This is actually really interesting because if we're thinking, going back to what you said previously about Marx's notion of productive activity, which is fundamental to human nature, then that does something really interesting when we think of capitalism. We do produce. It does. It is something that we do. What is the problem then for Marx? Well, under conditions of capitalism, so I think one of the challenges is that we as workers uh, sell our labor in return for a wage. But in the course of our laboring activity, we end up producing all of these items. So imagine you're at a shoe factory and you're producing shoes. The, the difficulty is, is that um, the, there is a group in society uh, uh, who owns the materials, who owns the factory, who owns the means of production. And that isn't our Joe Blow worker guy or Mary Jane worker gal. Um, Neither of these uh, own the means of production. And so consequently, uh, what happens is the uh, 
capitalist or the group that Marx calls the bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie will pay uh, Jane or Joe a wage for their labor time, but then retain the fruits of their labor, i.e. the beautiful shoes, etc. And so what's so crappy about this system from Marx's perspective is that uh, Joe and Mary Jane will make their wage, leave the factory, and then decide, oh, you know what, I need a new pair of shoes today. So then having to go to a shoe store and pay someone else for shoes that they may or may not have made. So it's a counterintuitive system in the sense that Marx would in principle think, well, dude, if you're making shoes and you're putting your labor power into into fabricating these shoes, surely you should be able to uh, own the fruits of your labor and enjoy the pleasure of the shoes that you've made. But under capitalism, the structure is such that the means that are made available to you to actually produce those shoes are not means that you can actually concretely and materially benefit from. Rather, you need to go out and and, uh, purchase those shoes separate from the labor time that you've put into making them. Aren't you just reduced to your labor then? You become, you know, the the shoemaker or X or Y. It seems to me if Marx was taking a starting point of productive activity as part of human essence, then to restrict your human activity to one specific mode of production, for instance, um, you know, making shoes, writing, doing whatever, but you are obligated to make this, uh, to do this as a product of your labor, it seems restrictive and even violent when we think of the self as, if we're trying to think of the self in a generous way as something that has multiple potential, but has potential capacity for various things, within capitalism, you are quite restricted in what you can do and what you're expected to do. Mm. So it seems like Absolutely. And I think one of the uh, qualities of Marx's conception of labor power is that labor power under conditions of capitalism is certainly exploitative. And as we'll discuss, it is alienating. But this is because it actually, this sort of negative critique is actually situated and butts up against a really positive conception of what the possibilities are for productive labor. Um, So I am recalling from his economic and philosophical manuscripts, which was written in 1844 and uh, constitutes part of his early work, Um, he offers a positive conception of of production. And I'm just going to quote, so please indulge me. Uh, Quote, but productive life is species life. It is a life-producing life. The whole character of a species, its generic character, is contained in the matter of vital activity, and free conscious activity is the species characteristic of man. Life itself appears merely as a means to life, end quote. So in that, um, Marx is giving this sense of productive activity as being the means or the vehicle through which we as human beings end up expressing our vital activity. It's the means by which we 
become and are constituted and reproduce ourselves, both materially and practically as living beings, but also spiritually, I would say, with respect to how we conceive of our conditions of possibility, our pleasures, our happinesses, and so forth. What does that say then of non-human animals? Because non-human animals have the capacity to use parts of nature for their own benefit. I can't think of any examples right now. Surely there are animals that are able to use... Oh, beavers. I was just thinking beavers and dams. Beavers and dams. Or there's the lovely weaver bird with their nests, which are are so marvelous. spiders do things too. Their webs. Various heaps of animals. What is the difference then? I suppose that for Marx, I mean, and and he observes this in the text that I just mentioned, that really one of the differences is that non-human animals supplied, the beaver, will make a single dam and will be satisfied with making uh, that particular structure concretely out of immediate physical need. Whereas human beings will say, you know what, like, I'm going to make myself a fine house and then decide, you know what, I can actually make two of those same houses or three. And so example aside, I think one of the qualities of human productive activity is that we can exceed uh, what our immediate material need is and we can reproduce constantly beyond what we need immediately in order to survive. And so, in other words, we can, uh, if unchecked, overproduce. If unchecked, we uh, can produce materials that are not essential for our livelihoods or our well-being. And here, it's interesting because we can also produce for one another. We can make things for each other. That's something I think that for Marx, these, the non-human animals don't have the capacity to do. I mean, I suppose it's a question of scale. Like, I think this is one of the qualities of, of Marx's argument is that, um, you know, it is true. We can, we can make for ourselves and uh, make in relation to others. And this is one of the consti- constitutive elements of what labor, human labor is, is that we labor in relation to one another. And this is what makes Marx such a social thinker, is that uh, transforming nature into another object is not something done strictly in isolation Mm -hmm. from the perspective of one individual, but because it is completely socially organized. The conditions of labor are are provided by uh, social relations. We labor more effectively and productively when we work well with other people. It has the capacity to nourish our our soul and our our well-being and we can take pleasure out of the objects that we create. We also make things for beauty, for aesthetics. Mm. And that's Uh, right. That's that's sort of the 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 qualitative dimension about you know why mm. we actually produce something independent of questions of scale like quantities of stuff mm. we also have qualities that inform and shape what we actually choose to make so I happen to know Nama that you have a fantastic shoe collection <laughs> and surely your fantastic shoe collection is not dictated solely by uh, orthopedic comfort Oh, the opposite. If I cannot wear them comfortably, then I buy them. 
that's uh it's not about comfort or utility or you're right it is a big collection and i don't wear all of them all the time uh, it's my 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 fault as a consumer and participant in capitalist culture is shoes but what's interesting though is that this is created by conditions of capitalism so you know the fault for marx is not individual fault so much but the fault is a fundamental systemic fault that creates the conditions in society such that we would overproduce, produce beyond need, um, but also precisely because we end up producing for reasons of beauty and otherwise that we would exceed our remit, so to speak. So mm. I just say this because I think capitalism would say to you, Nama, enjoy those shoes. Buy as many as you need. Enjoy as their many discomfort. As you want. Exa- oh, yes, thank you. Important correction. Um, as many as you want, and it will reinforce you to purchase more shoes. Which it which it does. Yeah. I mean I mean yes. I think saying, "Oh, it's it's my fault." Well, yeah, no, you're you're being a good I, capitalist citizen. Uh, we all absolutely. are. Yeah. I'm very happy to blame the system and not take any personal responsibility whatsoever. <laughs> so, if I could just say something about this idea of human labor and this notion of species being because this is really what Marx is getting at. So, species being goes back to the productive uh, activities that as as humans we undertake the particular sense of laboring capacity as a condition of possibility for both material and i'll call it spiritual well-being Mm -hmm. the sense that labor can transform can transform both uh, natural objects into so-called material necessities for concrete practical reproduction of our human life and what's necessary in order to live i.e we need uh, food on the table a roof over our head and clothes to keep us warm Mm. but it's also the case that laboring is uh, and this is the quality that is the species being, that laboring is also extremely vitally important for uh, realizing or self-actualizing ourselves. That is to say that we can derive tremendous pleasure from work. No. I, it's shocking, I know, <laughs> my goodness. But in principle, this is, you know, if this is really what defines what it is to be human, yeah. then in principle, we should enjoy what we do. I think this is one of the fundamental misunderstandings and misreadings of Marx, and maybe because of his later work. This notion that Marx advocated, you know, in a communist society, no one would labor, no one would work, but it's, it's not that. It's that labor can be productive, can be inspiring, fruitful, empowering, all these things that are stifled in conditions of capitalist labor where you are reduced to your labor power and your capacity to earn for the capitalist class, which is awful because the things that the capitalist class values you know, aren't things that are life-giving, that n- aren't nourishing. For Marx, it's, it's, it, was a, it was a big part that we uh, produce and labor in a conscious manner, in a free manner, hmm. that we're, and that's how we self-actualize. It's very difficult to self-actualize when you are 
restricted in one particular role. Like I have in my mind uh, an image of um, of uh, that old Charlie Chaplin movie where he's like a cog in the machine. Oh yes, I don't remember the name of the film, but it, it was absolutely that. It's the human machine. You're just doing one movement, repeating yourself over and over and mm. over again, and there's no no freedom there. Mm. There's no productivity. And what sort of relation do you have to not only what you're producing, but whoever's around you and yourself? What does that say for our species being then? Mm. Well, I think that this is a really important point because for Marx, our species being is about laboring. And this is what makes us human. And so if under conditions of capitalism, we are being, our, our labor is commodified. That is, we're being paid a wage for our labor. It translates, uh, pardon me, transforms our relationship that we have with labor. It's no longer possible to self-actualize uh, through labor because we're always calculating. Uh, we're calculating how much money we're going to make, how much time something is going to take. And this shifts our attention away from the inherent pleasure that can be if one is working according to one's capacity, according to one's talents, etc. And uh, working well and being able to thrive under those conditions, you know, these are all the questions that are essentially sidestepped under, under capitalism where one's, uh, one's work is being uh, remunerated by a, a, a wage and, and measured and so scrutinized exactly KPIs <laughs> KPIs <laughs> that's right that's right I mean if if human productive activity is intrinsically satisfying it feels to me that producing within a capitalist system just counters all of Marx's notion of selfhood mm. or of a selfhood that is is capable of being actualized in in terms of realizing one's vital life potential because certainly uh, I suppose there's a conception of self that is materialized under conditions of capitalism but that sense of self is one that is fundamentally organized and structured by a mode of production that relies on the exchange of goods and payment for services rendered if I could I, I could put it that way and so I think one of the ideas that Marx has is that those structural conditions of society, the way that our production is organized, will produce a distinct relationship with the ideas, the values, the sense of self in a given society. So under conditions of capitalism, we have a whole sense of the neoliberal self, so to speak, which is the, you know, Namas sh shuddering. <laughs> oh no! Has the word neoliberal been said? Oh lordy! Hairs um, on the back of my neck are standing. Uh, you know, so that you know that there is this a model of selfhood that is instituted as a model that is encouraged in our society. And so you know what is that neoliberal model of self? It's one that is self-regulating, self-responsibilizing, self-organizing, is intensely aware of monetization and one's personal brands, etc. You mentioned vital activity. If we're thinking of vital activity, that would be eating, drinking, producing for our everyday life. For Marx then, animals, non-human animals, 
would have a sense of vital activity, something that needs to happen for their existence that is for their essence. Well, I mean, I you know, Could what is the bee, the beavers, the ants, the all all of them, all all the animals. <laughs> All the animals, yes. <laughs> the snakes, <laughs> the uh, koalas. Yes, no, I, I think that that's right. That, you know, vital activity is what is necessary for life. And living things have certain kinds of requirements. Things require some form of nourishment. Mm. Uh, something comes in, something comes out. And so that nourishment is... Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> true. Conscious vital activity differentiates the human immediately from animal vital activity. It's in this alone that makes uh, human species being, in that we are conscious beings. So basically, our lives and our ways of producing are conscious. They are more than just what is needed for my life now. It's to produce in a way that is free, that is um, uh, self-actualizing, uh, with potential, with a conscious awareness, mm. and something that, for Marx, non-human animals do not share. Mm. And I think that one thing I would add to that is that sense of uh, vital activity being something, that conscious vital activity is one of the functions of, of human beings is that we can step outside of ourselves mm. and we can assess ourselves and say, okay, what is the kind of person I want to become? How do how will I end up uh, cultivating, shaping, transforming myself to meet my prospective ideals or KPIs such as they might be? And so in that sense, one steps outside of oneself such that uh, one becomes an object to oneself. Just simply that sense of an externality where we have... Reflexive? Yeah, where we have that capacity to look at ourselves and evaluate our capacities in relation to whatever criteria we have in mind. It's in that context that so long as we're able to design for ourselves a form and a function of our vital activity and actually concretely and effectively materialize that uh, vital activity, we are exercising our labor in a free and conscious manner. So we have uh, imagination. We are able to imagine um, in that reflexive sense, but also just have a vision, oh, I want to produce X and Y, like a shoe that looks like this, or, oh, I want to make a scarf, or I get to put together all these different elements and make something that has existed in my mind and now exists and is created in the world, which is really kind of exciting because at first there was nothing and then there is a beautiful scarf. Exactly. Says one knitter to another, <laughs> yes. Well, and I think, you know, Marx... I, is anticipating the comment that, well, you know, animals do this too. Uh, certainly spiders produce a web or a beaver produces a dam. Or isn't that an ex expression of some kind of conscious construction? I think it's that point of imagination, of being mm. able to, to bring it in your mind's eye and think about what it will look like and take steps towards producing it which is I don't know do spiders have a mind's eye I don't 
I don't want to know, actually. <laughs> I have one. <laughs> well, and I suppose it's the question if we ask our friend Mr. Beaver, excuse me, Mr. Beaver, could we see the blueprints for your dam? There isn't actually a sense of, of the design prior to the development of of the dam or the development of the object and so it's that design capacity that is also one of the qualitative differences from Mark's perspective between human and animal. So we're able to not only transform nature but also anticipate, construct, have original ideas. Yes, yeah, so, and, and this is all of course in principle. Mm. Um, you know this is sort of the... I've the never had an original idea in my life. So. Oh no! <laughs> That is absolutely not true. But this is the case in principle, I think, that we should, in principle, have the capacity to exercise our imaginations. But unfortunately, under conditions of capitalism, that is restricted. And it's precisely because the way that we are, our society is organized around the buying and selling of labor that translates into the buying and selling of commodity goods, where labor itself becomes commodified. Marx's idea of labor, I quite like that as a response to this, I guess it's the KPI, capitalism. You are, your value is through what you produce and not that your capacity, potential, imagination, you know, forethought, all those things. Well, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that that happens for Marx is that it's that sense of laboring is vital life activity. And so I think under conditions of capitalism, it's, it's that sense of when are you really living? Are you really living when you're laboring and when you're working? No. It's TGIF, man. Life begins on Friday night and is lived to its fullest on the weekend. However... Aren't you then just returning to your vital needs, fulfilling your vital? So you're on the weekend, you are sleeping, you are eating, you are, you know, procreating or doing all these things. But these are the things that we share with animals, non-human animals then. So this is probably maybe one of the violences, I think. The weekend actually reduces you to your non-human essence, Mm. I guess. Well, and that it serves as a preparation for getting right back at it for, uh, you know, mundane Mondays. (laughs) Mundane Mondays, is that a thing? I don't know, I just made it up. I love it. (laughs) Well, you know, so that you spend the weekend recovering from the week when, in fact, for Marx, laboring is is such a constitutive part of it is our species being. And so we should be laboring and should be... uh, exercising pleasure in labor. Of course, it's the case that somebody needs to take out the trash and uh, clean the toilet bowls. But in balance, in principle, we should be seeking an enormous satisfaction from the nature of productive productive activity itself. But the fact is, under capitalism, only a very few uh, may, and the majority absolutely don't. And this is the violence. I think that's it that I mean so far there's the sense of being alienated from the your very labor. from the labor the product of your labor yep there's your point now which is being alienated from uh, your species being that is what makes you human and lastly I suppose from the very act of producing because if you are looking for TGIF and you're still on a Tuesday uh 
Twiddling Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) We've got mundane Mondays, Tuesdays, Weeping Wednesdays, uh, Thirsty Thursdays, (laughs) and TGIF. You know, if if that's your attitude to your working week, then you are being alienated from the very act of producing. Oh, that's so sad, though. It is so incredibly sad. And this is, I think... One of the just absolutely marvelous contributions that Marx makes to encouraging us to think about what we practically and materially do and how what we practically and materially do in terms of our labor actually shapes our relationship to self and to others. Uh, well, I really like that we're able to um, think about Marx in a way that isn't politically charged or any just going back to the origin and root of his work where he's trying to think about who we are as a people, as a species, our relation to each other, and what makes us human, what makes us who we are. Who who, who, who am I as self? What am I? So we could say um, for Marx then, if we're trying to sum him up in a couple of lines, and this is uh, going back to, to Descartes, which was one of our first few episodes, Descartes' statement was, I am, I exist as long as I'm thinking. That was his definition of the self. And for Marx then, borrowing off of Descartes, would be, uh, I create myself through labor. This is my species being, and labor can make me human. But of course, we would need to add, under conditions of capitalism, of course, it can also make me animal mm. and just look for margarita fridays (laughs) (laughs) we should have margarita mondays i know i like that you know maybe it was a thirsty thursday that got me thinking about the possibility of margarita mondays yeah i like that too so but you know this and so i mean this is what's interesting how do people cope then with the realization that life is truly lived on the weekend under conditions of capitalism they end up inventing margarita mondays to get through the nature of the rest of the week I, well, I love that we can invent that. Aren't we kind of just exercising then our imagination and self-actualization by coining and inventing a new um, framing for Monday. I think Marx will be very proud of us. Marvelous Marx. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining, joining us tonight. Today? Today. Today. Still today. Day. Yeah. Today, this afternoon, this morning, this evening, whenever you're whenever listening. Whenever you're listening. On this marvelous Monday or fabulous Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good one. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. Bye. You Can't Say That is a Carlin White collaboration. Stephen Hunt composed our fantastic music. And Francesca Ribbon-Chang designed our wonderful logo. And Cristo Fuertes is the alienated labor that helped to put this podcast together.